Guys, I would encourage you as we are moving through this chapter to uh, add listening to it. How many of you guys like have a practice of maybe using your Bible app and listening? Yeah, a lot of us. It helps me so much. Like it's good to read it. It's good to read it fast. It's good to read it slow, but it's also good to listen to it. Um, I also found this is a little bit I don't know. If you like theatrics, which I do, I found a recording of John Piper reading Romans 8. And it's um, just, if you put it in Spotify, like Romans 8, Piper, they put music behind it. And I mean, it's a long chapter, um, but I've been listening to that like every single morning. Um, And again, just like trying to memorize it in that way. And it's been really helpful. So um, I would encourage you to, to try one of those. So here is a text that I got midweek that was super helpful in framing how we're going to get through um, these 11 verses today. Uh, She said, uh, sorry, literally all those those texts were actually about women's basketball. That's really embarrassing. I'm scrolling down. Focus. Here we go. Bible study question that I'm pondering this week. What is the balance of not condemning myself, like Romans 8, 1 says, and still properly feeling the weight of my sin and mourning over my sin, like Jeff mentioned, maybe two weeks ago? Was that that sermon, right? And I said, that is exactly where we need to go this week. That is the tension that I think a lot of us have felt. And you're supposed to feel that. Like when we are in the Bible, a good way to be a good student of that is to ask the question that that seems most obvious. Like, are you sure it's okay to rejoice that there's no condemnation? Because my fear is knowing myself, if I do that, that I'm going to fall into one of those ditches that Emily just said, and I'm not even, I'm not going to care about my sin at all. I will have thought that I had arrived. So that's going to be kind of the the tension that's going to move us through this. Um, But beyond that, what I started noticing as I was reading this is that all three members of the Trinity are talked about in these 11 verses. So if you have your Bible open, so just take a quick look. Look and see mention of God, mention of Jesus, and mention of the Spirit. If you are doing the more independent study instead of the workbook, and maybe you are marking up repeated phrases um, or answering some of those prompts, maybe you kind of found yourself there anyway, noticing that all three of the members of the Godhead are there. And so I just thought, especially because we're just, I want to just kind of keep our approach fresh and stuff like that. And we have a little bit less time today. I was like, well, let's just, let's just ask these questions. What do we learn about God? about Jesus Christ and about the spirit. We definitely probably saw spirit, especially there. And so um, let's just start with this, guys. As we know, our passage started, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In this first verse, we're going to learn a lot about God, who isn't even directly mentioned right there. But I, I think it's also important to slow down and pause and don't act like we know what certain words mean. I mean, I've been saying this 8-1 on repeat, and then I was like, do I know what condemnation is? Like, my mind actually just went to, like, a condemned house that, like, was no good anymore. I was like, I don't use the word condemnation except for that. You know, as we started studying, I could maybe talk about it emotionally or, like, experientially. But I was like, wait a minute, do I even know what that means? So I paused and and looked up a a definition. So it's a legal term, condemnation. Uh, 
That means uh, to declare guilt and the punishment associated with the guilt. So let's make sure that we get that. We're going to go through a couple, you know, these are our Romans vocab words. We could, ooh, that'd be fun. If we have a teacher in the room, we could do a vocab lesson at the end. But we've talked about righteousness. We're going to talk about that again today. But here's another vocab word, condemnation. It's a legal term that declares both guilt and the punishment associated with that guilt. So think about the words that we ran into in our first seven chapters. Do you think you could think, I won't put you on the spot, is there another big Romans word that would be the opposite of condemnation? Keep it to yourself. See if you can get it in your mind. This took me a really long time to think about what it would be. It's part of why we started with the question, why does this start with the therefore? Why is this kind of a hinge verse from chapters one through seven and now onward? It's an important word, therefore. What's it there for? I think the opposite of condemnation is justification. Anyone guess it? Someone brag on something at your table if you heard him whisper it on, oh, a pointing, yeah. Yeah, justification. Okay, justification is to be declared by God to be righteous. Condemnation and justification. So why is there a therefore? Why is this an important verse? Because we're saying that chapters one through seven explained justification to us. It was saying, how can, it goes back to Emily Shart, how can an unholy person be close to a holy God? Because of Christ. That's the answer. How can we be made, how can we be justified? Okay, so condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So guys, if we are going to understand why that's good news, then we have to actually acknowledge that there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ. And then you think we're uncomfortable at that point. We have to let that sink in personally. For us to love 8-1, we have to acknowledge that if not for Christ, we would be condemned. We would be in condemnation. So why is that? Why are those hard truths important for us to talk about this morning? So let's just keep kind of going with this legal language. So I want you to imagine a courtroom or maybe you love the old show Matlock. Probably not. Whatever the cool new legal shows are now, but my mom used to watch Matlock. I want you to imagine that you're there. You've probably done this before. You are the one on the stand, guys. And the prosecutor is Satan. Okay, he is the accuser, as we talked about just a couple weeks ago. And what he is doing in this, in this legal setting is he is hurling accusations at you. He is saying, guilty, condemned, death. He is saying, you in front of everybody, he is bringing up every selfish thought that you've ever had, every lustful moment, every sharp word, every self-righteous thought. And he's hurling these at you, guilty, condemned. Here's what is crazy about this courtroom imagery, guys. In this moment where Satan is doing that, to my surprise, I have learned that he is actually upholding God's law in that moment. Ever thought about that? He, Satan is, is appealing to God's law in that moment, which sounds uncharacteristic of him. 
But that is how he is able to declare us guilty. He's actually correct in this moment. Guilty, condemned. He's saying, you must pay. We read about that just a couple verses into Romans 8, that the law has been broken or weakened by the flesh. It can only condemn. Because we are weakened by our sinful nature, by our flesh, the law can't save us. It can only condemn us. And so what do we learn about God from these first opening verses, guys? We have to understand that God is just. And then what we've already hit on earlier is that we have to see that God is righteous. And so here we are in this courtroom The accuser is throwing his accusations at us. And in that moment, before we rush to a feel-good moment, we have to more fully understand the scary thought that God, the judge, is just and he is righteous in that moment. So this is where we are, guys. We understand. I saw this on um, Veritas Cedar Rapids put a cool post out this week. They just simplified the gospel. They said, God is the prize. That means like, that's what we want. God is the prize but sin is the problem. And that's where we are in this moment in in Romans 8, is that sin is the problem. So what did God do? He provided the solution. God is the prize, sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution. Where did we see that in Romans 8? What did God do? He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Long sentence, right? Let's pick it apart. What did God do? He sent his son. So if I was doing the um, independent study instead of the workbook, these are the kind of things I would do to make sure that I slow down and observed everything I was supposed to do. So something that maybe I think I've already, I already know that. I know that Jesus is the son. Yeah, but maybe I go too fast that I actually forget it. It's important for me to write it down. So we see that he is the son. We see that he was sent And we see that he was sent as a sin offering. You guys see that in your text? So this is us just starting to pick away at what is the solution to this intense legal courtroom scene. Jesus is son sent by God in the likeness of flesh, of human flesh. I'm just going to write human for now. Sent in the likeness of human flesh so that he could be a sin offering. Okay, so then it's one of those moments where you're like tempted to just move on by sin offering, right? Because it sounds a little obscure. It sounds a little foreign to us. But maybe, as luck would have it, you're reading through like Bible Bible in a year or something like that, and you found yourself in Leviticus, like I did this week. And then maybe you sat in a sermon that also went to Leviticus. You're like, maybe I am supposed to care about what Leviticus says. Guys, this is so cool. This is Leviticus 5. I'm not actually going to read all of it, but I read through it. Then I picked up a pen and started writing, um, underlining repeated phrases. And these are the phrases that I underlined. The, the subtitle is called Cases Requiring Sin Offering. So you still hear that legal stuff, right? And it's talking about different sins, different law-breaking instances for the people of God. And here's the phrases that were repeated. When someone sins, blah, blah, blah. End of the sentence. He will bear his iniquity. One paragraph down, another sin. 
He is unclean and incurs guilt. One sentence down, another sin. He incurs guilt. One more verse down, another sin. He incurs guilt, incurs guilt, penalty for guilt for the sin that he has committed. It's ringing like a bell over and over again. He incurs guilt. He incurs guilt. We're supposed to pick up on the repetition of this. In fact, I think we're supposed to feel it of like, it just keeps piling. The guilt just keeps piling on and piling on for some, some things that seem so small, but the law was so complex, so expansive. And here it is in detail. This is what the people of God were, were held under. And then it says in verse six, this is Leviticus five, he must bring his penalty for guilt for the sin that he has committed to the Lord, a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering. Our phrase from Romans. So I'm, I'm cued in now. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his behalf for his sin. So the priest had to come and the provision had to be made before the Lord, a covering for the sin that would fulfill the law's requirement. But guys, you probably know this. You know that it wasn't a one and done thing, that they would bring a lamb one time and then it was good. It was on a schedule. It was a routine thing. They had to redo this over and over again. And I hope you see where I'm going here, but it's so fun to see it again and again, guys. For thousands of years, literally, I got out my calculator and gave this a go. We're talking millions and millions of lambs. Every time that lamb was slaughtered and every time that blood fell onto the altar, it was a arrow pointing forward. And so when we see it ringing like a bell, he incurs guilt, he incurs guilt. It's an arrow pointing to something coming. It's a whisper, it's a hint, not three times, not five times, but thousands or even millions of times throughout history. There were these whispers of a sin offering that was coming. And we get to see what it was in Romans 8. It was Jesus, the son who was sent in the form of a human, as our sin offering. And we picked it up in Romans 8. It answers why this happened. Why did we need a sin offering? In order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us. So here we are, we're back in that courtroom, right? And we're up in front and it's intense and we're sweating and it's not just a small penalty, but this is life or death. And the enemy, the accuser, is throwing these judgments at us. And as he hurls his arrows of guilt, Jesus steps in. First John depicts him as the advocate for us. Jesus was sent by God to take our guilt and our punishment. Now guys, here's where I think those of us who have been in church for a long time, who sit in rooms like this or sit in classes or VST or Salt Company or connection groups, we hear this a lot. And oddly enough, it can fall into just, it's just so over-familiarized that it becomes a blur to us. So could we, could we try and stretch our minds just a little bit? Could we tease out or focus in on just a couple things that actually um, show us how this works? Instead, I mean, I've heard since I was little that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, right? Any of you ever feel that way? You've said it so many times. You've heard it so many times. You're a mom who has said it so many times that it's lost its power, that power that we talked about last week. 
So, but do we actually understand, like almost like the nuts and bolts of Jesus's death on the cross and what it did for us, guys? Let, let's see if we can just learn a couple things. Here's where actually I want to start. Sometimes when we read Romans 8.1, we think there is no condemnation. And maybe what we're thinking is, why, why is that? It, the condemnation just poof, just disappeared. Like the guilt that I had incurred just poof during worship one day. Is that just, it just dissolved into thin air? Is that what's true here when we read Romans 8 in context? Think for a second. Where did that condemnation go? Did we wish it away? Did we tip the scales by being just good enough that it slid off the other end of the scale? No. The condemnation did not poof away. The condemnation moved from us to Jesus. The condemnation that sat heavy on us in that courtroom, Jesus stepped in and took it. When we see the sin offering language, we need to think like substitute language. Jesus was the substitute. Why is this important? Because first we tease out just even a bit of what is true about God. Can God be both just and poof away justice? No. For God to be just, he has to uphold his law. He has to act out of his character. And we talked about this in week one. It's not just that God is righteous, but it's that he requires righteousness. But then it's that he provides righteousness. So the, the, the condemnation that we deserved is now on Jesus. He has stepped in our place in this courtroom. So that means, guys, are, are we getting that? He was treated as if he was the guilty one, but he was the only innocent one. He took the punishment. We said condemnation. It's not just in taking the guilt, but also the punishment that came with that guilt. So that means that he took on the physical pain of the cross. I think that's probably the first one we think about, right? We think about the beatings. We think about the crown of thorns. We think about being stabbed in the side. We think about the nails. And we realize that that is the physical pain that we deserved. But that's not all he took on. Not only did he take on the physical pain, but he took on the death that we deserved. And this one gets a little bit hard to understand, but he took on the pain of bearing sin. Right? We have those moments where we do feel condemnation and it feels horrible, right? And we're going to end with that. Jesus took that on on such a greater magnitude. But then also, guys, Jesus, as he stood in our place and was treated as the guilty one, he took on the abandonment of the Father. As the heavens turned dark when Jesus died on the cross, that's what we're supposed to understand there. That dark heavens, that is like God turned his back on his beloved son. It's supposed to make us think of like Egypt and the 10th plague when the skies turned dark, symbolizing the wrath of God. So isn't that interesting to think about? That means that Jesus didn't take on the wrath of Satan. He took on the wrath of God. Isn't that interesting? Why? Again, 
What do we come back to? Because God is just, because he is righteous. But as we move through these truths about Jesus, as we see him as the sin offering, guys, doing once and for all what the people of Israel needed done over and over again, what we actually see that because he did that is that Jesus satisfied God's justice. We read that this week. He satisfied God's justice so that I and you could experience God's love. Jesus, who is called the beloved son of his baptism, is now taking on God's wrath so that we could be substituted as the beloved. But the good news, and this is where it starts to sound like Easter, and I love it. I love to get to Easter way too early. Like, I think we should celebrate it all the time. What, what is true then is that the penalty has been exacted in Christ's death. Did I sound like a lawyer right there? Those are, that's my fanciest sentence of the morning. The penalty has been exacted in Christ's death. Guys, what that means, what I read this week, is that when Satan is hurling those accusations, once Jesus has stepped in, Satan has lost his accusatory power. I like that. He has lost his power. The serpent king has lost his teeth, his fangs. Death has been disarmed. Death has lost its sting. That's what we sang about. This is just what's slowing down a little bit to look at Jesus, to look at the work on the cross, what that means for us, guys. Satan has lost his accusatory power, and that is why we can say, and that's why we can memorize Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But there's one more little thing that I just want to pick up on whenever Paul allows us to. Remember last week we introduced union with Christ and we saw how when Christ came to Paul, he said, why are you persecuting me? Even though it was the church who had been persecuted, right? So he was identifying so closely with his people. Well, now it's just going to keep going because if you think about it, in his death and in his resurrection, we see union with Christ because He's sharing his identity with us as a victor. He's sharing his victory with us. He shares his law-keeping status with us, right? We're here as a transgressor. He's the one who perfectly obeyed, contrasting with Adam, and he just shares. It's as if I now get to stand before God as a law-keeper. He shares his righteousness with me, right? He looks at us. And he sees his son, he sees Jesus, because we have his robe of righteousness, is how I think it's said in Isaiah. Okay, so as we move through Romans 8, guys, if condemnation has been moved from us onto Christ because of God's justice, his righteousness, and his love, then what's our play now? What do we do with that? And that's where I think the spirit comes in. And I think that's what the majority of one through 11 talked about, guys. The question is, how do we respond to our sin? The question that came in the text that probably a lot of us felt is how do I live as a saint who struggles with sin? How then do we live? Here's the verses. Um, I'll start in verse four. And so now... um, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. 
The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. All right, guys, we saw here lots of repetition that we now have the choice to live according to the spirit. If you're not in Christ, you don't even have the choice to please God or not. But we do. We who are in Christ, who are in the spirit, in God's spirit, we get to pick. Do we want to live with the mindset of the flesh or the mindset of the spirit? Or I read it this week, the sway of the flesh, like getting swayed by it, or the sway of the spirit, the mindset, the sway. And what I started to realize is I was trying, sometimes if I feel like I'm getting stuck in theoretical or academic, I just close different study books. I open up my prayer journal and I just get all the feels out and I just make sure that I'm actually living the scripture. And so what I did this week and what I realized through journaling is that because of who God is, because of what Jesus has done, and because the spirit lives in me, I know that there's no condemnation, but what is there if I'm living by the spirit that would help me deal with my sin or help me live? And I think a good contrasting word is conviction. So I thought that we could fill this chart together and then go to our tables and talk about it. And this will kind of be where our application takes us. What is the difference between listening to condemnation versus listening to the spirit? And this list is not exhaustive. Maybe you guys will add to it at your tables. Um, We'll see, but here's, so sorry if I'm blocking it as a lefty, but here's what I, here's some things that I notice. I want to know the difference between these because this, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be under the sway of the flesh. I don't want to be feeling condemned. I want to be here. And here's the differences. If I'm hearing condemnation, then according to Romans 8, 1 through 11, I can say that this is the voice of the accuser. Uh-oh. Two C's, one S. Okay, thanks. Okay. Okay, so if if you're hearing guilty, guilty, and it's heavy, and it's ugly, and it feels nasty, then it's probably the voice of the accuser. Where we learned here, this is the voice of the Spirit of God. If, my, if I feel pricked by the Spirit of God about a sin in my life, then it is going to be from the Spirit, and that is conviction. Condemnation, I don't want to be over here because condemnation, we've just talked about, brings death. But what do we read about in our verses? That the Spirit of God brings life and, what's the other word? Peace, yes. Okay, this is also at least how I feel. When I'm feeling condemned, when I'm hearing the accuser, when I act like there's not an advocate who stood in my place, then what I hear over here is that I cannot come near to God. But if it's conviction, if it's the spirit talking to me about my sin, about my bitterness, about my attitude, about my hard-heartedness, it tells me the exact opposite. It says, draw near to God. Oh, there's some beautiful, beautiful verses about this, about his kindness leads us to repentance, or the verse about draw near to the throne of grace, 
to help us in our time of need. Okay, here's what else I notice. When I feel condemned, the voice that I hear ends up leaving me stuck. Or paralyzed, spinning my wheels. This is when I talk hamster wheel thoughts, circling the drain. I'm getting nowhere. But man, conviction, when it's from the spirit of God, guys, this is when I move forward. R, W, forward. Yes. You guys didn't even help me on that one. <laughs> Moves me forward. I'll say, I'll add this to into newness. Man, guys, doesn't newness feel so much better than stuck? Here, I would add under condemnation, this is the last one I have, is fear. Condemnation leaves me fearing circumstances. This is probably pretty personal to me. Maybe it's different for you guys. Fearing the circumstance or fearing failure. Depends on your Enneagram type, probably. <laughs> Don't come and tell me that that's wrong or it's fine. But in conviction, what might this produce? How about fear of God? It helped me so much to, it felt like a mess of how do I know what's what? To just take the time to separate them, to tease them out. Big differences when you do that. Something feels like death, death versus something feel like life and peace. Now guys, the, when we start with these things that are obvious and then we keep working through it with the Lord and we think about words that maybe aren't as clear, like what about shame? I think it'd be good for us to think about this. I might surprise you with this, but I actually don't think that this is the only place that we put shame. I actually think that sometimes there's, and Brian Dermody gave a sermon on this years ago that has stuck with me, that shame, especially if it doesn't stick around, has a place from the spirit because it helps us turn from our sin and invites us to step into the light rather than to stay in the shadows. So guys, when we say there's therefore no condemnation, it doesn't mean that the only option is to say I'm right all the time or that I can sin all the more. But by, by looking at it this way, guys, I think what it says is I'm not condemned. There is no condemnation for me. Oh, why? Not because I'm so impressive or I've worked so hard, but because I then say, because I have Jesus's righteousness. It's, it's tied to the gospel. Instead of saying, I'm perfect or pretty darn close, instead we say, Jesus is my perfect. I'm not always right, but Jesus is my rightness. And I'm just throwing myself on that all the time, guys. That is the way to freedom. Here's our nice little chart. Here's, you know, two sides of a whiteboard. Look at what we've learned. Look at the clarity we have. We started with attention. Maybe we've solved it. But there's still attention when it comes to real life. And here's where I want to say on a bad day in a dark time, we might want to look at these verses and say, no, I'm calling your bluff, God. On a season of doubt, we might say that. And here's, here's why. Here's this 
here's being real back at the Bible and watching the Bible be able to uphold our sufferings. Even when this is where we're living, under the dominion of the Spirit, under the sway of the Spirit, Paul explained to us that our bodies are still under the law of sin and death. He said, now if Christ is in you, this is verse 10, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. I had no idea what this verse meant for days. I think what he's talking about is, remember we talked about how Paul will address our unspoken questions Right? He comes and he comforts our fears and our doubts. I'm saying, along with people in my life this week, hey, I'm living here in the spirit as much as I, I, I can. I'm learning to live in the spirit. But my body feels like it's decaying. My, I feel wrinkles or joint pain. But how much more so when it's somebody that we love? I just think through different people in my life this week who would say, yeah, here is somebody that I love, but they, their body is groaning. I feel like Paul is, is explaining and then trying to give us hope by saying, I know you don't always feel this life in peace when you're suffering. And maybe you're not feeling life and peace when somebody in your own home or a dear friend or an innocent child is fighting a disease. And Paul's one half of the sentence is Professor Paul. He's saying that's because of sin. Because our bodies, our mortal bodies are still affected by sin. And that is why diseases happen. But then he says right after that, if the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. He's validating <laughs> that it doesn't feel like victory all the time. He's validating that it doesn't feel like life and peace. He's validating your questions when you're saying, why is my child sick? Why do I have this diagnosis? And then he becomes Pastor Paul. And he says, but have hope because your bodies will be resurrected. And there we are with union with Christ again, that just like Jesus was resurrected, we too will be. And we will get these new glorified bodies. So even while we're trying to live here, that is what keeps us going. That is what gives us comfort and courage. But I also was thinking to Emily's chart. When we're kind of having this honest moment with the word, and maybe if we kind of think of this like, here we are with time, look what a good thing time can do for us as it clarifies God's holiness, as it shows us the depths of what we've been saved from. And Jesus just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Maybe when it comes to problems in our life, to sufferings of people we love, maybe our goal could then switch from, I want my problems to get smaller. I want her problems to get smaller to I want a bigger view of Jesus. 
Maybe even if we only kind of mean it and we only kind of mean it sometimes, we could switch our prayers to our Father who understands us to not just take away their problem, take away my problem, but give me a bigger view of you. Give me patience and give me faith as we wait for our resurrected bodies.